Hello church. Due to some audio and technical difficulties yesterday, we don't have the sermon recorded, so we'll be re-recording this for future reference. I hope that the Lord uses this to build us all up and strengthen us in our faith. The text we'll be looking at today is John chapter 14, starting in verse 22 and going down through 31. So I'll give you a minute to turn there while I kind of recap what we've been looking at in the book of John. If you've been with us, we know that John's purpose is that we might believe and have life in Jesus' name. And there's two halves of John's gospel. Number one, the book of signs, spanning from roughly chapter 1 through 11. And then the second half, the book of glory, from chapter 12 to the end. So we're now in the second half of the book. And Jesus, before he goes to the cross, gives one final discourse, the farewell discourse, from about chapters 13 to 17. So we're in the middle of this discourse. It begins with four different comments or questions from different disciples. One in verse 36, verse 5, verse 8, and now today the fourth and final in verse 22. So please follow along with me as I read from God's word. John 14, 22 through 31. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. But I am going because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Pray with me. Almighty God. We thank you for your son. We ask right now, as we learn from your son, that you would continue this ministry of the Holy Spirit, teaching us the things that Jesus taught, reminding us of the things that Jesus taught, so that we might be built up in our faith as a reflection of you through the power of your spirit being made into the image of your son. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, as we kind of start the sermon, I want you to think about something. Water. Now, we're not going to be talking about water in this sermon, per se, but just follow along with me for just a moment. Think about whenever you're outside working. It's been a hard, long day. You're mowing grass. I just started mowing my grass, unfortunately, did the first cut of the season, and I get done, and sometimes I get done, and all I want is a nice glass of sweet tea. But this particular time, I finished mowing, and I really just wanted water. I craved it. 
Or maybe some of you younger guys or ladies, you get out and you play basketball, you go play tennis, whatever you engage in, you get done and you just need water. The thing with water that's interesting is you don't quite appreciate it until you realize you need it. And then when you realize you need it, you crave it. The more you need it, the sweeter it is when you get it. And the longer you go without it, the more you long for it. Now, why do I bring up this illustration about water if we're not going to be talking about water? Because this morning we're going to talk about peace. And peace is very similar in that you don't quite appreciate it until you realize you need it. And the more you realize you need it, the sweeter it is when you finally get it. And the longer you go without it, the more you long for it. See, unfortunately, one of the consequences of living in a fallen world is that peace is lacking. That's just a consequence of sin. We struggle for peace. We seek after it with everything that we have. And we think, okay, well now I'll finally have peace, but it never seems to fully arrive. But what I want to propose to you this morning is that Jesus is the only true way to have true peace in this world. And I mean this literally. It is impossible without Jesus. And I'll show you why. Follow along with me, starting in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So this is the final of the four interjections from the disciples. After this, the farewell discourse will go from a dialogue, that's Jesus and the disciples talking back and forth, and it's going to be a monologue after this. If you have a copy of the scriptures where all of Jesus's Words, the quotes specifically, are the red letters. If you scan ahead the next couple of chapters, you're going to see basically nothing but red letters. So Jesus is going to be giving an immense amount of teaching here. One of the cons of reading and looking at this farewell discourse this way is that this mode of communication doesn't communicate everything that we might need to have to know 100% what's being communicated. Let me explain why. I'm not saying God's word isn't perfect, but think about when you're communicating with someone, you don't just listen to words. We're tempted to read this and to just see words on a page and to read it just in a monotone way. But as Jesus is speaking this, there are things that we can't see, we don't have access to. Voice inflection, facial reactions as he's speaking. The words that he chooses to emphasize and how he emphasizes them. We don't have these things. You can communicate without them, but sometimes you run the risk of misunderstanding what's being communicated when you don't have access to those things. So what we have to do sometimes as we come to a text is try to see the things that aren't quite there to help us understand. I believe what we have here in Judas's comment is an escalation. It's almost as though the disciples are getting worked up. I want to go back over the four questions or comments so far from the disciples. Think about this. Here's the order they're presented in. Well, Jesus, where are you going? Why can't I follow you? I'll die for you. Well, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus, just let us see the Father. That, that'll be enough. That'll satisfy us. And then finally, well, how is it you're going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? It's almost as though there is a desperation developing within the disciples. They know something is happening, and they're afraid. They're uncertain. What's going to happen, Jesus? How is this going to happen, Jesus? Now, why do I believe that this desperation is developing? Because, as I've already said, we can't see the emotion here on the pages. But I think that we can say this with confidence because of how Jesus responds to Judas's question. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now as we look at this response, everything in this verse should sound incredibly familiar. If you back up to verses 18 through 21, which we looked at last time, it's almost exactly what Jesus just said. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You see that? Verse 21, and he who loves me will be loved by my father. Verse 23, and my father will love him. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 23, we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, Judas asked a question that Jesus basically just answered. And so Jesus is simply repeating what he just said. It reminds me of like teaching our kids softball or soccer or anything new. And there's the excitement and the adrenaline of doing something for the first time. And so we tell them, like, okay, you step up to the plate, you're going to swing, you're going to hit the ball. If it goes like this, and you're going to run all the way through and go around to second. If it goes this way, run through and curve to the right and stop at first and all these different things. And then the excitement builds up, and then your kid swings and hits the ball. And it's like everything you just said, they freeze. And they forget what they're supposed to do. And you have to remind them, like, run, go. This is the time to go. And this is kind of what we're seeing here with Judas's question. Jesus had already made these comments. And Judas, I think, in this desperation, is saying, well, wait, Jesus, how is this going to happen? And Jesus stops and slows down and repeats himself. Jesus manifests himself to those who are born again. Because they love him and are filled with the Holy Spirit who transforms them into Jesus' image so that they do the works he does. That's how the manifestation works. And the reason it doesn't manifest to the world that way is because the world does not love him, is not filled with the Holy Spirit, and does not do his works. That's what we looked at this last week. The slight difference here is that last week we didn't see the second half of this about why the world does not experience the same manifestation. But it should still be obvious in what Jesus said. And yet Judas asks anyways, why? I believe it's because the stress of the situation was starting to get to him and the disciples. This desperation is starting to develop. Why is it so important for us to see this? 
because Jesus is about to give them the antidote for their increasing anxiety. But this antidote isn't just for the disciples. It's for all Christians. It's for you and me. And this antidote, if we don't understand why the disciples received this antidote, we might not see in ourselves our need for it. fact of the matter is, we can relate to increasing anxiety in response to Jesus' statements, just like the disciples. Well, wait, Jesus, how am I supposed to love my enemy? What if they're intentionally being unlovable? Well, wait, Jesus, how am I supposed to turn the other cheek when I'm being taken advantage of? Wait, Jesus, how do I forgive others who aren't sorry and keep sinning against me? Wait, Jesus, how am I supposed to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect? Jesus' commands are difficult to follow. And sometimes we can develop anxiety or desperation as we think about what Jesus says. God, how can I trust you when so many things appear to be going wrong? God, how am I supposed to pray without ceasing when I've got more going on than I have time to accomplish it all? God, how is it possible to have joy when I feel so alone? God, how can I rejoice when I have family members who are running from you? We can all relate to this. And if we don't see the disciples becoming worried, we might read over this antidote as the antidote to our worries as well. So now that we understand this, what is the antidote? Skip ahead to verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The antidote to all of our anxiety, desperation, worry, and stress is the peace of Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this verse. There's a repeated phrase in this chapter, let not your hearts be troubled. And we skipped down to this verse because we see this phrase again, let not your hearts be troubled. And we looked at how Jesus gives us peace. He does it through the Holy Spirit. Whenever we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit, we have his peace, and that is the default position of every Christian, filled with peace. However, we introduce these outside stressors and factors that stir the surface of the water, that disturb our peace. Well, this morning, as we look at this again, we're going to get to look a little more closely at the peace of God that is ours through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So now, with all that being said, let's go back to verse 25 and watch how Jesus unfolds this idea of peace. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So as the disciples are getting worked up over what Jesus is communicating to them, Jesus is essentially grabbing their hand and walking them to where they need to go. 
It reminds me of teaching Kristen to ride her bike when she was younger. We're transitioning off of training wheels. And as I'm teaching her, what I would do is I would grab the back of her seat on her bike and I would grab her handle and I would just walk along beside her. And I would pick up speed and have to jog and hunch over. It was terribly uncomfortable. But I had an end goal in mind. I'm going to eventually be able to let go and she's going to be able to go without me being right there. But this was a process. I couldn't just put her on the bike and say, okay, go. Good luck. No. I went along beside her and I would let go of the handlebar with one hand. And I'm still holding on to the seat on the back. And I would comfort her by saying, look, I'm still right here. It's okay. And I would slowly release my pressure on that seat so that she could start to bear the weight of the bike herself. And I would still tell her, it's okay, I'm still right here. But she recognized when the pressure of my hand was decreasing. She knew it. She knew when I was starting to back away. And it creates this stress, this anxiety. And I would remind her, I'm still right here. I'm still right here. And this is kind of what Jesus is doing. He says, I'm answering you now while I'm still with you, but soon I won't do so. Rather, the Holy Spirit will take over and he will teach you and he will remind you of what I taught you. The training wheels are fixing to come off. And it's right after this comment that Jesus gives us the promise of his peace. Now, here's the question for us this morning as we look at this more deeply. Why does Jesus link, number one, the Holy Spirit teaching and reminding with, number two, his gift of peace? We've linked the Holy Spirit and peace already. But now that we're looking more closely, he links not just the Spirit, but the Spirit teaching and reminding. Why does he link this with peace? Now that we have that question setting this up, let's finish verse 27. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus links these two together because he wants his disciples, including us, to understand exactly how it is that God gives us peace and why. Jesus does not give us peace like the rest of the world gives us peace. Think for a moment about how the world gives us peace. Apart from our God-given peace, if we were to just take that out of the equation, how is it that you have peace where you work? You work hard. You please your boss. If you don't and your boss is displeased, that will generate stress and anxiety, weightiness. The way to have peace in that moment is directly proportional to how well you are carrying out your responsibilities. It's performance-based. Apart from God-given peace, how is it that you have peace in your relationships? It is directly proportional to how much you are pleasing that other person. If they are unpleased and it becomes known, this anxiety and tension builds up. The way the world gives peace is always in exchange for something. 
It's dependent upon you. How well you perform. How you speak to someone. You do well, you're at peace. But if you don't, you're not. This is not how Jesus gives us peace. It's important for us to see why before we see how Jesus does it differently. Why doesn't Jesus give us peace this way? Look back at 27. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus' peace combats the troubled heart, let not your hearts be troubled, and the fearful heart. We need peace because our hearts become troubled and afraid. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's our first observation. Some key truths about having a peaceful heart. Number one, our hearts are troubled when we are uncertain about God. Our hearts are troubled when we are uncertain about God. The word for troubled here conveys the idea of being disturbed. In fact, sometimes it's translated that way. Another way to think about this would be anxiety, worry. This lines up with the illustration we used last time of the surface of waters being disturbed and we are not at peace because we're anxious. So the troubled heart is a worried heart. Jesus speaks about worry In a famous passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And in this passage, Jesus teaches that we don't need to worry about our lives, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear. And he gives two examples. He says, consider the birds. They don't labor or work or store up food in storehouses, but your God makes sure that they are always taken care of. What about the lilies of the field and the flowers? They don't work and spin clothing together, but they are gorgeous because your father sees to it that that happens. God knows what you need, and you are more important than birds and flowers, and he will take care of you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be provided. Well, in verse 30, Jesus attributes the one who worries in this way... What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? As one who is of little faith. Our worry, without exception, always reflects a degree of uncertainty regarding God's care for or control over us. Our worry, without exception, always reflects a degree of uncertainty regarding God's care for us or his control over us. We're uncertain if God is going to be able to handle this in a way that we like. We're uncertain if it's going to be for our good. My heart is troubled because in that moment, I am of little faith. I am uncertain about God. Now you may think, No, Garrett, I'm not uncertain about God in this moment. I'm uncertain about blank. Fill something in. I'm I'm not uncertain about God. I'm uncertain about the stock market, my retirement, my investments. 
No, Garrett, I'm not uncertain about God. I'm uncertain about a certain relationship right now that is tense. I'm not uncertain about God. I'm uncertain about inflation, the direction of our culture and our economy, our future well-being, on and on and on. Listen closely. There is not a single item you can place in that blank that God does not have total and complete control over. There is not a single item that you can put in that blank that God is not in total control over. If you are truly able to put something in that blank to make that statement, then you don't have one problem, you have two. Worry and idolatry. When we say we're uncertain about something, what we're really saying is, I don't know how God is going to handle this, and it might not be good. We are giving more power to the thing we put in that blank than we are to the God who sits over that. So a troubled heart is a heart that reflects uncertainty about God. Well, what about a fearful heart? It's similar, but instead of being uncertain about God, it's uncertain about what might happen to us. So here's point number two. A fearful heart is uncertain about how we will be affected. A fearful heart is uncertain about how we will be affected. How is this going to affect me? Will I have to make a sacrifice? Will I be hurt? Will I be embarrassed? We fear the unknown, and we don't know what will happen, so we're afraid. Now, if we put both of these hearts together, this uncertainty about God, and then this uncertainty about how I might be impacted, do you know what we get? We get the definition for selfishness. When our hearts are troubled and afraid, we are too focused on us and not focused enough upon God. It's selfishness. If you're not convinced this is the case, let's keep going. And look at how Jesus paints the disciples in verse 28 here. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. When Jesus said, I'm going away to the Father, and then I will come to you, the disciples should have been happy. He said, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Whoa, Jesus, you're going to the Father? Great! God is so good. That's excellent. Oh, you'll come back. Wonderful. But they didn't respond that way. What Jesus is implying here is that they didn't rejoice and that they didn't love Jesus, at least in that moment. They weren't focused on Jesus or God, but they were selfishly worried about how this was going to impact themselves. Selfishness. Now let's contrast the disciples and how they were handling Jesus' departure with how Jesus himself handled it. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus knew what was coming up. He says, the ruler of this world is coming. If someone says, Satan is coming for you, he's on his way. You know, to me, that seems like the type of situation that you might stress about. (laughs) Satan's coming for you. Oh, no. (laughs) But look at how Jesus responds. He has no claim on me. I do as the Father has commanded. Let's go. Jesus was utterly unselfish and utterly God-focused. And the result was that when he faced this situation that might stress someone like me out, he was at total peace. Any normal person would stress and fear being betrayed by a close friend. Being murdered for a crime that you didn't commit. Bearing the weight of the sin of the world also, by the way. But Jesus is not a normal person, is he? Jesus recognized that God is in control, not Satan. Satan had no claim over him. And he reasoned, if God my Father brings this to pass, I will trust him in the midst of it. Jesus provides for us a model, an example, something that we could not follow apart from him. If we could do what he did, we wouldn't need him. But we do. We do need him. We can't do that. And one ministry of the Holy Spirit is that once Jesus is gone, the Spirit will give us the power to live that same way. What does all of this tell us here? The journey from worry and anxiety towards peace is the journey from self-centered thinking to God-centered thinking. Why do we need peace? Because of our self-centeredness. My eyes are on me and my well-being and how I'm going to be affected and what I'm going to like or not like about the situation. And they are not enough on God who is over and in complete control of all these things. We need to move towards God-centeredness to experience this peace. And here's how this happens. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now we see it. Now it makes perfect sense why Jesus would link the Holy Spirit's teaching and reminding us with peace. 
The Holy Spirit helps us become less self-centered and more God-centered by teaching and reminding us of everything we read in God's Word. This is how the Holy Spirit gives us the peace of Jesus. This is the antidote to our worry. If you'll remember, I said at the beginning that Jesus is the only true way to have true peace in this world. And now we can see why. It is impossible to be God-centered if we do not belong to God. It is impossible. We cannot. We see it recorded in the history of the Scriptures. Israel is God's chosen people. They received His law on the mountain. He looked over them and multiplied His works and wonders among them. And even they, as His chosen people, could not be God-centered. It is impossible to be God-centered if we do not belong to God. And we cannot belong to God but through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. Any other avenue that we take to pursue peace is a lie. And it's a fake peace, a surface level peace, that will eventually fade. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this, and you know by experience. And you have turned to Christ who gives you true peace. Some of you maybe have not experienced this yet. You don't know this by experience. And I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you may know it will not last. The only genuine lasting peace is that that is found in Jesus Christ, who gives us his Holy Spirit that we might be able to recall and to embrace his teaching, to be God-centered in our thinking, less self-centered in our thinking, and only then will we have true peace. So this leads to the last point here. Number three, a peaceful heart is God-centered through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. A peaceful heart is God-centered through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, you already have that peace. It is within you. But what happens is, we take our eyes off of Christ and we put them onto ourselves and our circumstances and in doing so, we disturb the waters of our peace. Do you remember when Peter walked on the water towards Jesus in Matthew 14, 22-33? Jesus is walking on the water. Peter sees him. And he says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. Listen to verses 28 through 31. Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat 
and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Wow. Now look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. His eyes are off of Christ and onto his circumstances and onto himself. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, listen to these words, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, why did you become uncertain? The secret to success here is to stop pursuing peace in your own power. In our own power, we are just like Peter. Our eyes look around us at everything going on. We worry about how it's going to affect us. And we lose sight of God's love for us and his power in our lives. Immerse yourself in God's word. And it will reorient you to be God-centered. And in the middle of the day, when you threaten your peace with your own self-centered tendencies, the Holy Spirit will bring God's Word to your remembrance so that you can stay focused on Jesus and have peace. Church, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. The author and finisher of our faith. And in so doing, live in perfect peace. Amen? Amen. Some questions for us to reflect upon today as we close out. What has been troubling your heart lately? In what areas of your life have you had uncertainty about God? Maybe you've doubted his ability to carry out something, to control a situation. Maybe in your mind you haven't, but in your heart you've doubted and wondered if he really loves you. And if he is really going to carry out a situation for your good. What has been making your heart fearful lately? How have you been too focused on how something might affect you. And not focused enough on what God is doing in the midst of that situation. How do you think. Hopefully the Lord has brought something to your mind now. How do you think that God desires for you to be God-centered in this situation? How does God want you to be God-centered in how you handle this? What are some intentional ways you can remain God-centered throughout the day? What are some things that you can do to help remind you of God's control and care over you in your life throughout the day? And finally, to any unbelieving friends 
who may be listening. Are you ready to reject every other false peace that the world tries to give you in exchange for your efforts? Surely you know it's pointless. You will never have peace this way. Are you ready to reject this false peace for the true peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ? If you will place your faith in him and trust him, commit your life to him, to turning from your sinful ways, your self-centered ways, he will restore you and redeem you. Not through your own ability and power, but through his infinite might that he will cause to work within you. You are not strong enough to change, but God is strong enough to change you. This is the message of the gospel. And by turning to Christ and surrendering, you will experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. It will guard you and carry you through to that day when you finally see your father face to face. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for the peace that is ours through Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit who can teach us and bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has taught in the scriptures. Even bringing to us new insights based on what we read in your word so that we might be more God-centered and less self-centered in our thinking and that we might have peace. God, we trust you. And we ask you to help us in those moments when we don't. Make us into a God-centered people, just like your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die in our place so that we might have access to this peace. We ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to read a passage of scripture for you real quick from the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. We read this closing out the service yesterday, and I think it's appropriate for us to read it in closing out this message today. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. I hope you have a wonderful day in the Lord, and I look forward to worshiping together with you in person at church the next coming up Sunday.
God bless.